Welcome, listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry, and this is IronRadio.org. I am a nutrition professor, I'm an exercise physiologist, and I've competed in bodybuilding before. I'm Rob Fortney. I'm a journalist, uh, history working for different uh, muscle magazines, and I'm a competitive uh, strength athlete. And I'm uh, Charles Staley, creator of Escalating Density Training and author of Muscle Logic. Phil Stevens. I am a record holder, power, record holding power lifter, a strong main competitor, potential Highland Games, and coach with Staley Training Systems. That's so modest, Phil. You you know people don't realize Phil is actually a world record holder. <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, but uh, hey, well um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take over here because uh, we're fortunate enough to have John Doyle here from BaseballTrainingSecrets.com, and. Uh, John, you're an awesome story, and you've been a great friend to Staley Training Systems for, for a long time, so so thanks for spending uh, a little time with us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Charles. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, uh, this is such a great, um, you know, you had such a, you really uh, had an inauspicious beginning in baseball, I guess, having been cut outright from your uh, high school baseball team as a freshman. Uh, and then from, from that start, you went on to earn a college scholarship and uh, team captain uh, on your college team, and uh, uh, along the way you kind of transformed yourself from, I, I know what it means to be skinny fat, by the way. You went from uh, like about 180-pound skinny fat high school kid to a 225-pound uh, athlete, um, and, uh, you know, subsequent to that you became an All-American uh, candidate, and you were a head uh, baseball strength and conditioning coach at Adelphi, um, uh, you were a collegiate hitting and fielding coach at Adelphi as well, and uh, you've got uh, all the uh, requisite degrees, and you've written all sorts of books and articles and DVDs on per, uh, improving performance for baseball. So you just have a, a, a great, uh, a, a great resume for all this. And, and we're going to talk about strength and conditioning for baseball. So, uh, so what was that like? Uh, I feel like you're a kindred spirit. You were you were cut from your freshman baseball team, and this nonetheless became your passion in life. What was that all about? Well, you know, growing up, I I grew up in a really small town, so you know, I was I was good in little league, but you know, who who wasn't good in little league? Um, yeah. You know, and, I wasn't. You know, big picture, small <laughs> pond. Well, you know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Neither was I. Then when I hit, you know, yeah, I hit around thirteen, fourteen, and uh, competition got better, the field got bigger, um, and I wasn't that good anymore. And, um, you know, so I, I went out for my high school team. Uh, I got cut, and so it was a, certainly a humbling experience. And uh, so, you know, I, I realized that I needed to get stronger and, and become a better athlete. I re- really wasn't gifted with the best athletic ability. So I uh, just started doing some research and, you know, I made plenty of mistakes along the way, but worked hard enough. So, I, you know, I made that the team my sophomore year and, and, and was able to uh, – Improve well enough to you know play in college and earn all American and then you know w- work within the field because uh, you know strength training and, and weight training really helped me transform my body from like I said skinny fat weak you know uh, not much yeah. muscle tone and, at all and you did and, get you know, stronger didn't you I mean you've recently shared some of your lifting numbers actually your present lifting numbers but. Tell me what kind of numbers you've done on familiar lifts so that people have a sense of who we're talking to here. Uh, I've done a full clean with 315 for multiple. Um, I've hit 500 on a squat. Uh, everything's raw. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
545 on the deadlift. Uh, bench, I don't bench that much, um, but I've hit 405 once, uh, but I, I don't do it that often. Yeah. Uh, but given the fact numbers. that you're not, you know, a professional strength athlete, those are very, very respectable numbers. So, uh, um, no, no question about it. So, so really, improving your physicality was was the key, and you were apparently, you know, uh, smart enough to realize that at a young age. That obviously you must have had the technical expertise, but uh, was it you were just lacking horsepower? I, I think it was everything. I think. Um, yeah. Looking back, I didn't necessarily know at the time, but um, I do think when you train, obviously when you train right, it will help your technicality. You know, if if you could, you know, the whole key in baseball is to be able to, you know, generate force from within and, um, you know, squatting, deadlifting, uh, you know, building that dynamic strength, uh, you know, definitely helps with bat speed. What you is know, the um, emotion, that type of thing. we're talking to John Doyle from BaseballTrainingSecrets.com. dot uh, com. John, what is the uh, are, are, are there what is the prevailing sort of uh, attitude towards strength training in, in baseball? I mean, is is baseball a sport like uh, you know, for example, traditionally in the martial arts, you know, strength training is kind of poo pooed. So, is is to what degree is strength training kind of accepted in, in the whole realm of baseball? Well, it's accepted now. Obviously, with yeah. you know the last fifteen years or so um, of baseball, you know, with uh, strength training has really come into play. Uh, before yeah. then, you know, it was looked at it would make you muscle bound. Uh, you know, you wouldn't have any flexibility. You'd lose the ability to throw and swing. But obviously, we all know that um, isn't the case, and that's since been disproven. Sure. Um, and and so virtually. Every athlete, every baseball player, you know, at least from high school on, realizes that they need to to have do some kind of weight training, uh, you know, in order to increase their performance in addition to their, their technical work. So it, hey, John, can I ask you a question? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to ask the question. Could you – I often hear about people mentioning baseball as a, a skill sport and things like that. If you had to, could you put a percentage or a number on what percentage baseball is uh, physical fitness, you know, things like strength or flexibility versus skill? Is it like a 60-40 thing? Well, it's kind of hard to say. It's kind of a sliding scale because obviously the younger you go, uh, you know, the better you, the easier you can get away with just being a physical specimen, right? So as you move up the, the ladder, skill becomes more and more important versus that's why, you know, the kid who hit puberty early at age 12, he dominates Little League. Uh, but even two years later, his classmates could have caught up to him, and now he's not even playing baseball anymore. And, and you see that very frequently. Um, so skill overrides everything, um, especially when you get into the higher levels. Uh, you don't see a guy who doesn't have skill um, it, at the high school level a little bit, but when you get in college and pro, if the skill's not there, it doesn't matter how good of an athlete you are, you're not going to survive. Uh, but if you're going to look on an even playing field, so let's just take major leagues, for example. You know, obviously there's some guys a lot more talented than others, but it's pretty close. They're all professional baseball players with the cream of the crop. A guy could significantly increase his performance and his numbers um, by increasing his, his athletic ability and his strength and his power. Um, and, and you see it all the time. You see guys that uh, maybe more marginal prospects, um, you know, they really hit the gym, um, they become better athletes, 
and now all of a sudden, you know, with perennial all-stars. So mm-hmm. it, it, the, the further you go up, you, you definitely, it, it's a must, but you cannot get away on just on, on strength or athleticism um, in the higher levels. It's kind of hard to put an exact number on it. it. That's a, you know, the question that Lonnie just posed is, is uh, it's always interesting to hear how people respond to that, and it, it is a difficult question because we, it's so easy to forget that um, physicality, in many respects, forms the bedrock for skill acquisition because if you don't have the physical capacity to get through practices, um, then you never get the chance to, to acquire that skill in the first place. So, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the conditioning and the skill components of this package are uh, uh, intertwined in a, in a big way, I think. Yeah, and it really goes hand in hand. And, and like you said, I mean, the one big thing, and and you really see guys improving upon, is they increase their muscular endurance, they increase their ability to recover, and and that's really the key to keeping them on the field. Where is before they may have, you know, lost twenty, thirty percent of the season to injuries, uh, but now they're stronger, their bodies are able to handle the stress, and they're able to show up at the ballpark every day closer to a hundred percent of their their ability which is going to give them an advantage over a guy that's injured. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the biggest thing is, you know, how could I get, how could I be as close to 100% every day as I, I possibly can? Um, and most guys in the major leagues feel if they're close to 100%, they have an advantage, you know, because most guys are playing banged up. So so that really plays yeah. a role in that. That's so critical, so critical. John, if we were to get into the strength and conditioning rooms of, say, the top uh, five MLB teams right now, uh, would we like what we're seeing? Or, uh, I mean, are, are good things going on? Or, uh, like other sports, does baseball suffer from a lot of mythology and a lot of kind of bad procedure? Uh, well, over the last few years, I've definitely seen a uh, an influence, you know, in, in a move in the right direction. Um, obviously, you know, my consulting with, with those teams, you know, I get them on the right track. But, a lot of times, if I go into a, a room that has never, you know, that I, I you want to, you just want to throw up when you see what's going on. Um, you know, as as you've seen before, there's a lot of machine-based work. Um, there's a lot. Uh, they're really scared of heavy weights. They're scared of compound movements. Um, they're they're doing bodybuilding style workouts. Um, you know, which which aren't applicable to baseball. Uh, they, they really don't have a place, sure. and they don't. Even, so. Uh, but I have seen a move in the right direction in some clubhouses, and um, it's no secret that those clubhouses that have, you know, have adapted the correct training methods um, do have perennial winners, and, and I don't think that's yeah, coincidence at all. Very, uh, very interesting. Um, so um, let's talk. To, I just wanted to make uh, make sure that we address your site a little bit, BaseballTrainingSecrets.com. Um, I'm on the site right now. There's a ton of information on here. My God, I would think if you were a player or if your kid was a player or if you had a player in your life that this would just be such a great resource. Tell me a little bit about the kind of kind of resources you've got on this site for uh, for baseball players. Well, yeah, you know, we just kind of started it probably four or five years ago and uh, just put some info up and mainly because, you know, I was running into, man, it's impossible to find good baseball training info. Uh, so we made a site, and, you know, it's grown. If, if you do a search for baseball training on Google, it uh, comes up in the number one and two positions, which is pretty cool. Um, and, you know, I offer a lot of free articles. 
um, a free subscription to my newsletter. Um, but if somebody wants to go beyond that, I do have DVDs uh, based on, you know, an ab training DVD for baseball, which, you know, it's not really abs, but, it's, you know, it's core training and it's uh, it's certainly not any crunches involved. And, you know, I have a, a dynamic warm-up uh, DVD, which, which really has been cr- critical for many teams and, and players and pretty much every major league team has adapted the warm-up and, and hundreds of NCAA teams because anybody who's a coach or has, has played Little League in the past or high school or college baseball, they know that it, it, it takes you about 45 minutes to actually start practice. Uh, but, you know, the, the whole thing, and going back to when you asked if training, baseball training was kind of stuck in the past, and this is one area where it really is, uh, is, is how to warm up for practice or for a game. And your typical thing is your coach will have you run a couple laps around the field, you'll get in a circle, the team captain will lead stretching, you know, good old static stretching for 30 minutes, and then you'll start throwing. Yeah, yeah. So by the time practice starts, uh, so, you know, I put together a really quick seven-minute diameter warm-up, you know, that addresses a lot of issues and, and really gets the players ready to go. And, you know, seven to ten minutes, they're ready to practice. And, and so, obviously, the longer you could spend practicing your skill, yeah. you know, which is so critical to baseball. As opposed to warming up for that. Yeah, yeah I, on top of having a better warm-up that's more applicable to what their bodies are about to go through. Um, we uh, we so go down and watch talk. some of the Cardinal games uh, here in Phoenix, and uh, the on-field warm-up just strikes you as so inefficient. And it's just amazing to me that, you know, you have these players making so much money and uh, the, the warm-up protocols just seem like such a joke. Well, see, the, the problem is, and, and really the problem with Major League Baseball and is with their strength coaches that they don't pay anything. So the guys, the strength coaches aren't making much money, and they're working brutal hours. So you have they have to travel on the road, so it's very tough to have you know a family. Um, they're not making much money. They have to be at the field before the players because some guys like to work out before the game. You have to be there after the game because some guys like to train after the game. So you're there. I mean, some guys are working 18-hour days, you know, eight it's months out thankless. of the year. Yep. Yeah, and, and so what happens is, is the good coaches, they just simply use a position as a major strength coach as a stepping stone. So they might do that position for one or two years and then go off on their own as a consultant or, um, you know, or work in a facility, you know, open up their own. So, so that's why you see inefficient work like that is because, Coaches overworked and the positions don't pay, and and it doesn't make any sense because you would think when you, when you're you're signing some guy for two hundred million dollars, yeah, you know, you'd pay the money to get a strength coach in there that's going to take care of that sure, those sure. players. It's not hey, John. Yes. yes. What what percentage do you think? It, again, with the percentages, I know, but what percentage of uh, professionals setting up the strength programs are strength coaches versus athletic trainers? You know. If you asked me this question five years ago, I'd say about 90% were athletic trainers. Now you have pretty much 100% strength coach. However, they're, like I said, they're, a lot of them are young and inexperienced. And, you know, this is their first, maybe not their first job, but, you know, they might have spent a couple of years in the minors uh, in that organization, you know, running the strength conditioning, but they don't have the, the expertise in the real world. Uh, application to be able to deliver, uh, but but it is going moving in the right direction. So it, most of the guys in the major leagues do have degrees and 
you know, have worked in, in the field prior to it. What would Very you cool. say are the uh, <clears throat> the uh, predominant movements that uh, high-level baseball players should be doing in the weight room? It's, it's really the basics. I mean, you're going to go – probably my favorite is a snatch, you know, power snatch. Uh, pretty much hits. Yeah, I mean, the posterior chain is so important in baseball, um, and, and the, the snatch hits obviously hits that great and, and that dynamic movement. And one thing people overlook is we, we basically try keeping. And, and I'm all about using heavy weights when when applicable. And certainly there are periods where a baseball player should use maximum weight. But the player also needs to learn how to to move and control. A submaximal object because what are they handling in baseball? A baseball that weighs a few ounces or a bat that weighs at most 34, 35 ounces. So it, as you guys know, it's very hard to control a light object. And, and that seems, you know, take a guy that lifts heavy all the time, you give him a light weight, and he has a hard time controlling it. And, and that's often overlooked um, in baseball training. You need to be able to control your body at high speeds but with lighter weight. Um, and that doesn't mean you're doing lightweight, high reps. No, you, you know, we do, a, we do a mix. We typically, most of the time, go between 40 and 65% of a, of a theoretical one rep max. And we're actually doing lighter, lower rep ranges. So we're doing three to five reps. Um, but every rep is extremely ballistic, extremely fast, extremely but, but control. Um, and so we do that with the snatch, you know, any of the major movements, the deadlift, the, any, any all the squat variations, you know, front squats, back squats, overhead squats, all those major compound movements um, we're doing just like any other sport really should be doing, you know, but we do have a little variation on. We will go through periods where we're in a, we're in a higher intensity, uh, you know, working in 80, 90% rep range, but a lot of time is spent teaching the body how to move very quickly, generating force from within, but yet still be controlled. Very interesting concept. Well, Phil, uh, so much for your power training for golf uh, concept. Uh, anyway, <laughs> no, 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 I'm still sticking to that one. That's a that subject for another show, so I don't want to go down that path right now, yeah. but uh, I'll, I'll take uh, John's expertise on this, <laughs> this subject. But. And, 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 but that's not to say guys yeah. never need heavier weights. I mean, oh, for sure. it really depends on the athlete. And, no, this, uh, is, my this is just an inside and, joke, but yeah. Hey, you know what? I, I got to bring up something quick. I, I know a strength coach who was working for the Padres, Danny Stinnett, and he was very concerned about heavy squats and career longevity, like lumbar spine and things like that. John, what do you think about career longevity and really heavy weights? Oh, what do you mean by really heavy weights? Well, like if someone's going to be doing heavy squats, I don't know, let's say 85% of their one rep max or... I mean, you're a you're a heavyweight user yourself. Do you think that that could have impact over uh, the length of a, a professional baseball player's career? Would that have any impact with osteoarthritis or anything like that? I, I think Charles has a similar um, thought on this in mind. I'm not sure about the other guys on the call, but there, in my opinion, there's very few bad exercises and there's bad application. So it, if if the squat is not done correctly and posture is not where it needs to be, uh, force production is not where it needs to be, then yes, it, doing consuming heavy weights could have a wear and tear on the body. But in my opinion, 
if you use the heavy squats at times throughout the year and the, the technique is proper, uh, there's no reason why that should have any detrimental effect on the body um, because the technique is, is where it needs to be. But, but what he's probably saying, you know, without speaking with him, he's probably saying you shouldn't go in every, every time in the gym, workout after workout, you know, and hitting your close to your max rep in a squat. And I, do, I do agree with that. And, and it certainly depends on the time of the season. Like the last thing you want to do, you know, in July or September or August, you know, when the body's just beat to a pulp is, you know, try, try to hit your PR or even come close to it. And, and that's really when, the, you know, the overall body fatigue, uh, you put yourself at a higher risk. Good, uh, good observation. Any other remaining questions for John? Well, in that case, I think, uh, John, we appreciate it. You're welcome to hang out for the topic of the day if you'd like to, but uh, really appreciate your uh, insights into this. And, again, John's site is BaseballTrainingSecrets.com. And, um, John, thanks for hanging out with us. Great. Thanks so much. Great, great, great comments. Thanks a lot, John. A lot of people might not know, Phil, if I'm not mistaken, that's your brother, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> that is Phil's brother's band. What's the name of the band? Uh, Iron Guts Kelly. You can go irongutskelly.com. Iron Guts Kelly. You just got to love it. You just got to love cool. it. Cool. I didn't know that. You don't have to pay royalties. I mean, it's just you can't have a better <laughs> scenario. So, uh, so look, uh, here's our topic for the day, and uh, the, the topic is improving your relationship to physical activity. So um, some time ago, um, I took it upon myself to categorize people into uh, three different realms when it comes to their relationship to physical activity. And the the first category uh, uh, is, for lack of a better term, a couch potato who is someone who uh, has an adverse relationship (laughs) and or no relationship to physical activity, uh, probably emphasis on no relationship. Uh, then there are, um, and by the way, probably if, if you if you look at obesity levels in North America right now, you know that's probably 90 plus percent of all human beings. Um, good timing. So, of, of the remaining uh, less than 10 percent of people who who do have a relationship with physical activity. Uh, and by the way, I'm saying physical activity so that I don't need to prematurely call it either exercise or training, and that'll make sense in a second. So um, most of most people out there um, have what I would consider to be an adverse relationship to physical physical activity, and I call those people exercisers. And um, uh, there are certain hallmarks of being an exerciser, and uh, the first hallmark is most likely they're not listening to this show uh, because if you are listening, you, you probably have already drank the Kool-Aid. But uh, if you're an exerciser, um, you view, first of all, if you're an exerciser, you don't train, you exercise, right? That's why you're an exerciser. And for you, exercise uh, fundamentally is punishment. And uh, it really is a way to tip the... Um, 
the uh, the you know the uh, the the um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for the the law of thermodynamics in, in your favor. So you think about um, the typical person who has a who hits rock bottom one day because they've looked in the mirror or they saw a photo of themselves or they got uh, somebody laughing at them while they were out in public. They finally hit the rock bottom and uh, they finally decided, all right, on Monday, which is, by the way, the the, the sure sign that that it's not going to happen, I'm gonna I'm gonna start dieting and exercising. So that exercise almost always involves some form of aerobic activity because that that's what hurts the most and that's what intuitively um, is is your concept of what's going to burn the most calories and so. Now your 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 whole life is kind of wrapped up in uh, consuming as few calories as possible and exp- expending as many as possible through exercise. And um, you know you're doing exercisers exercise um, not because they want to but because they have to. And their general goal in all of this is to improve their appearance. Although you know they may say it's to improve their health, but it really is to uh, improve their appearance. So. My sort of theory as to how we could get a whole lot of people to have a better relationship with physical activity is to turn them into athletes. And um, this is a bit of a tricky argument to make because when I say athlete, you know, depending on what your experiences are in life, you may have all sorts of uh, things that pop into your head. You might think of... uh, uh, Michael Phelps uh, either winning all his gold medals or taking a hit off a bong, or you might think of uh, A-Rod's uh, steroid suspension, or you might think of uh, a power lifter, or you know, all sorts of things could come in your head. But by athlete, I simply mean somebody who is embarking in physical activity as a reward as opposed to a punishment. And, uh, and they're doing this to achieve a purpose, uh, and while everybody wants to look better, athletes really are a little bit more involved in, in trying to improve a particular skill. They're trying to improve their performance, and that's why what the physical activity that they're performing is, is termed training because it's purposeful, it's proactive, and you know it, it, it basically um, you know is, is much more of a positive experience. So. Uh, th- this could be anything from somebody who is a recreational lifter to somebody who participates in uh, in martial arts, let's say, and it could run the gamut from professional to recreational, but really it's more defined by your mindset. And uh, and that's my concept of, of how to improve your relationship to physical activity, um, and that is to, to, to go from exercising to training and uh I think that whole experience is just far more uplifting and, again, proactive and, and purposeful, and it's something you can feel good about. And, you know, I don't know any athlete who says to himself, you know what, I think I need to get some exercise. <laughs> you know, it would be just a, such a strange thing to say. It's, it's just, well, the thing, the thing it's, that you commonly hear amongst people is when they hear that you're a weight trainer or an athlete of any kind is, oh, I go into the gym, it's, it's so boring. Weight training is so boring. Um, but you never hear that said by people who are athletes, and as you say, Charles, who people who have uh, you know a specific 
goal in mind or you know standard of performance that they're shooting for because yeah. how can how can it ever be boring when when you're actually striving towards something and as you say that's that's goal oriented and that's you know that that's a reward versus just aimlessly going i mean i i've often said that if i wasn't trained for anything specifically in strength or so forth that i i'd fall in that category too it would it would be absolutely tedious and boring but every time you go to the gym if 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 Every time you hit the gym, it's it's a little piece towards something that that's the greater of what you're look, aiming for. Then I don't see how it ever could be boring. So yeah, I think if people really want to get into it and stick with it, then they have to find something that is going to allow them to you know or, or give them passion towards going sure. for something specific. A lot of this is about motivation. Um, I, now this isn't exactly the same thing, but in the late '90s, there were lots of papers and books coming out on the readiness to change model and some of you guys might have heard of this before but basically the concept is much like the three categories Charles was talking about they have three categories in fact this is a handy trick for any listeners who work with clients essentially you just hold up a ruler and you say where are you on this scale as far as how ready you are to make some changes or how confident you are to make some changes but I think the problem a lot of people do is they start to assign goals when people have low motivation or low confidence levels. And sometimes people assign goals to themselves, you know, punishing goals, cardio, whatever it might be. But technically, academically anyway, when someone has low motivation or low confidence to change, you don't start setting goals for them. They're not ready for that. So instead, you, you can do things like raise doubt about their current choice, you know, if they're really stuck in couch potato mode. Maybe it's disease risk, or maybe it's appearance to the opposite sex, or whatever it might be. So you kind of educate them, give them advice, support. But as you go up, hopefully you build uh, confidence, and you build motivation, and then you can start asking them. Once they start saying, okay, you know, I'm ready to start thinking about this. What's your plan for me then? Then you can start doing things like, look at the barriers uh, in their environment, you know, uh, enablers, people who enable them to continue being uh, couch potatoes, or maybe there are certain triggers that cause them to kind of fall off the, uh, you know, the training bandwagon or something like that. Maybe there's barriers, uh, economic barriers, or can't get to the gym. It's a transportation thing. So I think that's the role for uh, professionals out there that are listening is how can you build confidence, remove some of these barriers, and keep moving them up this motivational scale uh, and Charles paradigm toward athlete, right? Because that's the point where you can start making specific goals, action plans, you know, really get something done. What's an amazing thing about that, too, is what's the very first question a typical trainer will ask their client on the first day? What is your goal? Yeah. And they're not ready. Yeah. That's good and that's, you. I think, where the mindset comes in. I think that's one of the largest differences is you know, like we always say, I mean, we train and eat. Exercisers exercise and diet. They do everything either restrictive or they're looking to defeat themselves, bring them down. Whereas athletes and, and lifters, we we have a positive mindset. We go in the gym not to see if we can kick our own butts, but to see if we can kick the weight's butts. You know, I don't go in there to come out to come limping out. That may happen. But that's not my goal. My goal is to go in there and do better for me to beat the, the weight room. That's a really Not to see if the weight room can beat me. And I eat for a goal. I don't diet, you know. 
I, I, it's for a reason. Have you guys, is it just me, or do you guys also sort of uh, resonate with the idea that, have you ever noticed that, you know, exercisers really view their activities as punishment, you know, um, whether well, they it's the way they move or the way they eat, you know, it's about self-punishment. Well, they certainly don't look forward to it. I mean, there are so many parallels. I, I've, I've been thinking that for a really long time. You have the people who, with their relationship with food, is very similar to their relationship with physical activity, isn't it? Because they look at, the, again, these highly like portion control, super restrictive, calorie counting kind of thing. Don't, don't, don't. Instead of focusing on a more proactive, positive, do. You know, do eat some more lean sources of protein. Do eat lots of fruits and vegetables. Things like that. And it's very parallel, I think, with the physical activity thing where a, a dieter would restrict and self-punish the exerciser might also self-punish with hours of ultra-boring cardio or paying their dues in different ways instead of just deciding to have some fun with it. Lonnie, what do you think about this question, okay? You must hear this all the time as a nutritionist. And here's something an athlete would never say, but it's something that an exerciser would always say, which is, is that food fattening? <laughs> or yeah. here, here's a close corollary to that. Um, such and such a food is bad, such and such a food is good. You know, only exercisers think like that. Right. Well, I, well, you know, the whole problem with it, whether it's any kind of that self-restriction or punishing kind of behaviors, they kind of set up a cycle of failure and guilt. And that's not going to lead you to motivation or to being an athlete, right? I mean, oh, I didn't do my, my cardio today. I feel guilty. I failed. You know, then you feel bad. Or that's like saying, oh, I ate half a pound of pasta and meatballs. I feel really bad. I, I, fa I failed, you know. And instead of, you know, I filled up on, I threw in a bunch of vegetables in with my pasta, and I feel really good about that. Or, you know, I went out and we did some cool, I don't know, um, parachute work sprinting down the track or flipping tires or you know it's just a completely different mindset and i think that's really what you're getting at it, it is and um boy you could just uh we could do a 12 shows on the subject i think but the interesting thing is and what's really sad is the very activities that are the most exciting and the most fun and the most productive and the most motivational are the very activities that most trainers would never expose a beginner to. And by that, I mean the strongman events and powerlifting and uh, Olympic weightlifting things and, you know, jumps and plyometrics. And, um, because when you think of those sorts of activities, your mind is always drawn to the most extreme forms of them. But uh, So maybe, maybe a beginning uh, out-of-shape adult can't do a 500-pound farmer's walk, but why can't they do a 30-pound farmer's walk? You know, right? Still fun. Still fun, and you have a sense of accomplishment, um, and uh, you can innately uh, intuit the purpose behind what you're doing. Um, so if you're if you're flipping a tire or you're doing a power snatch, there's a sense of completion and a sense of accomplishment behind that. Whereas if you're doing a, a one-arm tricep kickback, you're just burning calories, man. You're just targeting that muscle and burning calories and, and feeling the burn. You know, it's such a different experience. Fortress, you've been doing a lot of the kickbacks lately, right? 
Um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a lot of those, yeah. <laughs> Top of my bench. <laughs> no, but what I was going to say before is that, you, you know, for years and years I always talk about, <clears throat> and you hear people talk about, well, you know, make something a habit. You know, make, you know, working out as as as, as you would brushing your teeth or something like that but but I more importantly it's not I think I think that's the realm of of to kind of use these um categories that Charles uses that's the realm of the exerciser that's certainly not the realm of the of the of the athlete because an athlete doesn't need to have even even though it has become habit by that point he doesn't need it, it to be habit to do it because his motivation is you know passion for actually just doing it you want to go and do it, which kind of lends itself to the whole idea of, you know, these exercisers punish themselves and look at it as something they have to, have to suffer through versus an athlete who, who looks forward to it. You know, I mean, sure. I can tell you that, you know, on the days that I have a training session, you know, it, it's it's everything I can do not to, you know, overexcite myself in, in the hours leading up to it. Um, and, yeah, when you talk to people who are just, you know, exercises, who, who are in a habit of, of exercising, they're always, oh, well, I don't want to work out tonight. I guess I better go to the gym tonight. I guess I have to get that workout in tonight. And it's like, well, Gotta go. Well, see, it's so negative. I mean, how, how can you succeed at anything when, when you know, that, when you're going with that attitude, you know? So It's also, you know, hell, I want to have a few beers tonight, so i got to go train. You know, we go train and we have to eat. <laughs> we we generally don't eat because we we get to, but you know we we have to, and right. you know they people try to put that spin on things. Well, I earned a cookie. <laughs> 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 just, I just don't get it. But. Whereas if you were trying to you know focus on a strength event or something, it just there wouldn't be any issue in eating the damn cookie. You eat the cookie, you're trying to put on some weight, you know. Or you know, I I think about how different it is. I'm think, trying to lose weight, so I don't. Yeah. Uh, you think about like old Tom Platt's quotes. I remember watching that old movie, The Comeback. Did you guys ever see that? Oh hell yeah! He's like talking about put the mind in the muscle. You know, it's almost his workouts are so enjoyable. They're almost a meditation for him. This guy's just going inside, and I did that a lot when I was a kid. You know, and and even now I try to do that. It's it's completely the opposite of trying to disengage from what you're doing by walking and watching a monitor you know, a TV show or something. Instead, it's completely throwing yourself into it. And so that even happens in, in bodybuilding, you know, which might be a little less performance-oriented per se, but it's still a completely different goal. I've always thought of that as, um, like, accidental physical fitness because your goal is to, is your focus is elsewhere. Your focus is on something um, elsewhere, meaning good. You're you're really focusing on either that mind in the muscle or making the lift. You know your buddies are giving you a pat on the back, and then the physical fitness part of that is almost accidental in that it follows what you're just because you're doing what you love to do. You know. Well, that's that's why I think that athletes become so you know enraged when they see people in the gym who are talking to their cell phone when they're doing leg extensions and all that type of thing because I think it's so kind of alien to athletes to to see somebody doing that and to wonder how that's even possible to even get something positive out of the whole experience when you're so so far removed from, from what it is you're actually doing. I mean, you do have to kind of, an athlete wants to live in the moment, doesn't want to escape the moment. That's almost Buddhist, dude. Oh, you like that, huh? Yeah. Well, I got, I got that when I was doing some tricep kickbacks, but... Oh, right, right. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs>
good conversation, you guys. Uh, yeah. I'll be curious to see if people uh, have uh, have more thoughts on this. And if you uh, if you think you are an exerciser, and after this conversation, you'll know if you are or not. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think there's a higher path and a higher calling, and just uh, uh, a much more uh, you know uh, uplifting and positive and proactive. Uh, way to approach uh, physical activity so uh, that'll be food for thought I mean it's a resounding theme that's come up in all in all of our shows so far it's you know allow yourself to enjoy what you're doing if you don't like a certain training method that's okay there's 10,000 different ones find something you you enjoy absolutely and give you don't have to try to win on a treadmill if you hate it you know do something else do something you do enjoy you know, the same thing can be said for your trainer or your coach as well. I mean, if you go to a doctor and they say something that you really don't agree with or you want a second opinion, you go to another doctor. So if there's a trainer or a coach and they're doing stuff, you're like, this doesn't feel right. You're setting all these goals for me or I'm not ready for this or this is boring. I don't like it. There's no reason you can't go look for a second opinion, so to speak. Right. Boy, I, right. I I I could uh, do a callously uh, blatant uh, product endorsement here, but uh, I'll just make a, I'll just make a note of this. We are within about a week. We're going to be offering uh, genetic testing for the actin three gene through the uh, Atlas uh, company, and uh, for a mere uh, one hundred and forty nine dollars, you can find out if you possess one, two, or 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 no copies of the actin three gene, which gives you uh, a very good insight into what your um, what your athletic potential is, whether it lies along the endurance front or the strength and power front or both. So, uh, uh, anything you can do to get a sense of your your natural uh, your natural skills uh, is is a good way to start. So, is that for, is that it for today? I think we did it. I well, next week we're going to next week we have a cool topic. It's uh, we're going to be kind of discussing a little bit the, the, the body's finite ability to uh, recuperate from weight training and what is too much and is there such a thing and what exactly is overtraining and how that affects the whole uh, strength and muscle building scenario. So That's going to be a great topic, too, because so many kids get misled by these pro bodybuilder workout routines in the magazines and stuff, you know. There's going to be lots yeah. to talk about, for sure. And uh, who, who's the guest? Oh, we're going to have a Pep Wall, who's uh, the owner and operator of uh, a long-standing hardcore gym in Akron, Ohio, Lonnie's hometown, um, and uh, it's it's one of the most hardcore uh, powerlifting and strength training, bodybuilding gyms in the country in the U.S. So yeah, and this guy's a real local legend. So yeah, he's a great guy, and he's been around. He's that'll be fun. He's had some Sounds champions good. come out of his gym, so it's going to be a fun time. Good deal. I uh, look forward to it. Until next week. All right, guys. Uh, Good luck. Train Good luck. hard, everybody. Bye. Take care.